Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 17. And this is, um, Deuteronomy 6 is where Moses is standing with the people after they have been freed from slavery in Egypt. They've gone to Mount Sinai. They've then gone into the wilderness, and uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about why they were in the wilderness for 40 years as a result of the lack of faith, and now as the next generation is about to go into the promised land, Moses is not going to be one of them that goes. And so he gives kind of this um, farewell speech, and uh, the here's what you need to know before you go in. And this is a part of, a part of that speech as we go back through everything. This is Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 17. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we hear your word read and proclaimed today, that we would, uh, that we would be ready to hear it, that we would be ready to receive it, that we would be ready to understand it, that we would be ready to live it. God, we pray that, uh, that through and by your word and by your spirit, we would come to know you better. We would come to love and trust you more in everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 17. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel. And be careful so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Turning then to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 16. This is in the New Testament looking back on uh, things in the Old Testament and how Jesus has been the fulfillment and greater than all that has come before. Hebrews 4, verses 8 through 16. 
says, for if Joshua had given them rest, this is going into the promised land he's talking about under Joshua. It says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we were looking at the people in the wilderness and the ways that they uh, did not pass the test. They spent 40 years wandering around the wilderness. They did not pass the test. And this week, if you see in the bulletin, it is uh, the sermon titled Wilderness Testing Part 2. And so we're going to look a lot about, you know, maybe Wilderness Testing 2.0 or something. <laughs> this is a, uh, another test in the wilderness, but it goes a little differently. So we will look at that in a bit. Before we do that, I'll tell you uh, a memory I have from the year 2000. It was a night when I stayed up almost all night, and it was because I was really like on the edge of my seat, curious in anticipation. Uh, it was the night of the presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Anybody remember that? Anybody else stay up that night with me? <laughs> you guys just went to bed, didn't you? Like you don't even care. Okay. <laughs> now, so here's the thing is uh, I remember being really, uh, really convinced that one of these people was the right person to be the president, and the other one was the wrong person, and I really wanted to know, it, and it was really close going in, and it was hard to tell. You watch the polls. Who knows which way this is going to go? And so I was really hoping it was going to be the right person. I really hoping it wasn't going to be the wrong person, right? And I remember talking to someone uh, at work the day before, and we were just like, I don't know. Which way is it going to go? I don't know. I don't know. And we're like, but you know what? By tomorrow this time, this will be old news. We'll already know. And if you remember back then, <laughs> that was the night that I ended up staying up most of the night because there was a concession given and then taken back, and then the next day there was still no answer, and then it's on in the courts, and it was a long time, and everybody's like, we still don't know. <laughs> and so what I was longing for, though, was that clear, decisive moment of this is the one who is winning, this is the one who's not. Um, and maybe you felt like that, maybe not in that election, but in others where you know this is the person who it needs to be and not someone else. And if the person that you didn't want wins, you know that feeling of crushing disappointment. If the one who did, uh, the one you did want wins, then you have a different feeling of disappointment that usually comes later. <laughs> right? Because in the moment, it's thrilling and you're exciting. And you're like, yes, 
the guy I wanted is the guy who's there. That's, that's great. This is going to be the change of everything. And now this is the dawn of a new day and everything's going to be wonderful. And then time passes. And as it turns out, they're not perfect either. And so uh, we end up <laughs> kind of going through different levels of dif- disappointment depending on how that goes. The reason I bring this up is because the good news that we have as Christians is that we have a king who is over everything. And not only do we have a king, but we have a king who is the one person in all of history who ought to be the king. The one person who does not disappoint, quickly or slowly. (laughs) The one who remains faithful through it all. And so what we're going to look at today is the identity of this king. And so look here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this comes from Matthew chapter 3 and 4. Matthew 3, starting in verse 13, and then 4 through 4, 11. And uh, we have a few different places. And Becky, I'm just going to apologize now. This is one I could talk about for three hours and not get tired. (laughs) We will try to, to keep it uh, fairly brief. But, oh, there's so much good in here uh, about the identity of Jesus and what it is that is being communicated through these events. So Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13, what has just happened has been John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River, and he's telling them that there is somebody who is coming. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. This is just around the corner. And then... Jesus shows up. So here we go. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came 
and attended him. Oh, so good. So what's going on here? I mean, there's, there's a lot going on here. Jesus is being identified for us as the one who ought to be the king <laughs> of everybody throughout history. And we see this in a couple ways. And first, we see this at the baptism. Remember what happens? He's baptized. And as he comes up out of the water, see heaven open. And we see the spirit of God descending on him and a voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. It's interesting. It's whole father, son, Holy Spirit right there. And so he's being identified as someone different. I had a uh, professor in seminary years ago who was also a pastor, and he said that when he would baptize people, that it was a way of uh, kind of dying to self. And so you say, this is the judgment that you deserve is death, right? And so he said what he would do is he said, well, I'm going I'm to baptize you. And one of two things is going to happen. Either heavens are going to open and there's going to be this voice from heaven saying, this is the one I love, I'm well pleased. Or there's going to be silence, which means guilty as charged. And so he says, every time I baptize someone, I just thought, we're just going to take a moment and listen. Is this a death that you deserve or not? And so far throughout all of human history, there's only been one time <laughs> that the heavens have opened and declared, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And for all the rest of us, it is guilty as charged. Now, that's what happens at the baptism. And this moment, if things were as we would expect them to be, this would be the moment where, all right, let's head to Jerusalem. Let's gather a crowd and get this thing going, right? Here Jesus is, just been publicly identified as the one person that God has opened the heavens and spoken, the Spirit has on him, come on, let's go, let's get this thing started, right? But if you've ever watched anybody with any kind of skill that you don't have, as soon as they start doing something, you're like, that's not what I was going to, that's not how I would have done it, I don't expect it that way. So you see somebody who's like a metal worker, and they've got the, everything's hot, and they dunk it in the oil, and you're like, whoa, what are you doing? That doesn't make any sense. And they explain, no, you have to do that. That's how it hardens. <laughs> oh, now I get it. Or, uh, well, you get the point. I had several other examples. We don't have time. But if you ever see somebody with that skill, it, it never goes as you expect it to go because they know something about it that you don't know yet. And so when Jesus comes up out of the water and his, has the Spirit come on him, and you're thinking, now's the time. Right into Jerusalem. Let's get this thing going. And instead, what does the Spirit of God do? Drives him out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And we're like, well, what a waste of time. <laughs> we could have been doing something productive here. But there is something going on here, and it's something quite significant. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and what does he spend that time doing? He's not gathering a crowd. He's not out preaching and teaching. He's out there by himself doing what? praying. It says he's fasting. But as you know, if you've read much of the Bible at all, you know that fasting is always associated with praying. It's not something you do to lose weight. It's not a diet program. It's not just the not eating. It's the not eating for a spiritual reason. It is to uh, say that though our bodies do need food, there's something more important than food. 
And though our bodies uh, do need the food, we recognize that it is a gift that has been given, and we don't want to receive the gift and miss the giver. And so it is a way of saying, I'm going to put that aside for a time and replace that with a time of prayer. And so when it says that Jesus is out in the desert for 40 days, in the wilderness 40 days, fasting, we can just read right into that, that what he's spending his time doing is not just not eating, but that he is doing something, and what he's doing is praying. And so for 40 days, he's out here praying in the wilderness. And then at the end of 40 days, it says he was hungry. I love this line. It's like the greatest understatement in the Bible. <laughs> he didn't eat or drink for 40 days. And at the end of the day, he's hungry. Yeah. Quite. <laughs> I don't know the longest you've ever gone without food, but it doesn't take long. I, get, I start getting hungry. And so at the end of 40 days, the devil comes to him and starts saying, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, right? That's the, what keeps coming back. If you are the Son of God, because this goes right back to what just happened at baptism, right? The heavens open and says, this is my son. And he says, okay, really? If that's the case, why don't you do something? Why don't you do something like, uh, I don't know, you're hungry, right? Here's some stones around here. Why don't you turn those into bread? Make a little meal out here. There's nothing wrong with that. Is there? This is a weird one, isn't it? So, I heard someone say years ago that looking at the temptations of uh, Jesus in the wilderness, that sometimes we think he gets off easy because, I mean, come on, he's God. <laughs> you know? So these couldn't be real temptations. And so when we face temptations, we think that we are experiencing something more than he experienced. And the pastor that I heard talk about this said, actually, it's the other way around. Because he is the one person who did not ever succumb to temptation, he knows the full force of it more than we do. And the way he explained it was he said, imagine a forest that gets hit by a hurricane where it knocks down every tree but one. Some go quickly, some go later, some resist for a while, and then are knocked over. He says, of all those trees, which one understands the full force of that storm most? And it's the one that stands through all of it through everything that it has to offer, and yet it stands. And this is what we see in Jesus. Also, you've heard the phrase, um, Lord Acton, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard this? All right. There are temptations that each of us face. My guess is not one of you has ever once, not even for a little bit, been tempted to invade Poland. Anybody? No. But Adolf Hitler in 1939 faced that temptation, and he invades Poland, and World War II starts. You have not been tempted to invade Poland because you do not have the power to invade Poland. (laughs) And so the more power you have, the different temptations you will face. And so when we see Jesus uh, uh, having this amazing power, which we see him demonstrate later. He does make bread and feed a lot of people in a wilderness later on. And it's a whole different situation, a whole different reason why. And yet here, does he have the power to make bread into, or to make stones into bread? Yeah. That's why it's a temptation. Have you ever been tempted to make stones into bread? Probably not. <laughs> 
because you don't have the power to do that. But for Jesus, he says, look, if you are the son of God, why don't you do this? And why doesn't he do it? Well, what is the answer? As it is written, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is that right? Yeah. And so he goes back to Scripture. And this is uh, what we'll use here as a way of explaining all of these things. Because every time that Jesus quotes Scripture, which, of course, the second one we see the devil is like, all right, we'll play the Scripture quoting game, and he does so too. That's where we need to be careful. I heard um, someone say, and they had a professor that talked about the Proverbs in the Old Testament as being like pocket change, where um, you've got all different types of coins, and so you've got all different types of Proverbs. And not every coin is right for every situation. Not every proverb is right for every situation. And it takes wisdom to know when you need this one versus that one, when you need a combination of these two, (laughs) those sort of things. That's very helpful. And I think it's beyond just proverbs, but all of Scripture. It's not just enough to know what it says, but why it says that, what that's about. And so the devil does quote the Scripture. He's got it right in the words. But he has the meaning completely wrong. And, of course, that is the game that he's playing, is to take what has come from God and to twist it into something else. He's been trying to do that with people. He's been trying to do that with Scripture. That's what he does. That's his game. And so he's uh, doing that with Jesus. But Jesus, all three times, responds with just quoting Scripture. This man does not live uh, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And where does he quote from? That actually matters. That matters a lot. Where is he quoting from? It's not just the Old Testament. It's not just the uh, first five books. It's actually he quotes all from the same book and all from a pretty narrow section of that book. It's Deuteronomy 6 through 8, twice in chapter 6 and once in chapter 8. We read the two parts he quotes from in chapter 6 earlier. This is that speech that Moses is making. This is what Jesus quotes from. Does that matter? Yes, it does. This gets right at the heart of why Jesus is in the wilderness. Because when Moses is preparing the people to cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, we've got to keep this geography in mind. When he's making that speech, do you know where he is? He's where Jesus is, right here, in the wilderness, on uh, the east side of the Jordan River. And so now Jesus has come to that same place where Moses makes the speech to the people and says, you have failed every test you've been given. I'm summarizing, but that's kind of the idea of it. You have failed every test you've been given, and now you're going to cross the Jordan River, and you're going to go into the promised land. And what God is calling you to do in this land is to drive out the evil that's there and establish his kingdom. But but to do that, you can't do it on your own strength. You cannot do it your own way. You have to do what you haven't done up to now, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. You have to trust him in everything. You have to do it his way. And so what happens? You know the rest of the story. They do cross the Jordan River, and they go into the land. And they do sometimes drive out the evil, and sometimes they welcome the evil to live right there with them. And so it never goes as it could have gone had they actually 
loved God and trusted him in everything. And so what we see with Jesus going to this same place, not for the 40 years, but for the 40 days, symbolically representing that same period of time in that same place, and he, passes, or he faces the same kinds of tests that they face. But at every point where they fail, he succeeds. And how does he succeed? By trusting God. By loving and trusting God more than anything else. And so the temptations that come as he faces those, the one with the bread, this is basically a, hey, why don't you use your power to serve yourself? And Jesus recognizes that's not what his power has been given for. That's not what these stones have been given for. And he understands this, and so he, no, we're not doing that. Later, we do see him make a lot of bread. And it's to serve other people. When Jesus said later on, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what we're seeing happen in this showdown, good versus evil out there in the wilderness, of uh, the devil saying, look, why don't you, you've, you've had a hard 40 days. I think you deserve, you know, a snack. And Jesus says, no, this isn't, <laughs> this is not the way we do this. I have come to lay down my life for others. The reason I have power is not to serve myself, but to serve others. And we could go through each of the temptations and see how this, the answer is basically the same. The temptations are basically the same. The answer is the same. They're just different sides of the same kind of thing. It's always right back to the Garden of Eden. That same kind of temptation of, look, why don't you just do it your way? instead of God's way. And what every single person in all of human history, ourselves included, has done is said, okay, except Jesus. The one person who understands that it is God's way, and that is the only way. Um, that what we have gotten from going our own way is only death. And what he has come, and what he's come to do is to bring life. And that only happens if he follows God completely and trusts him completely in everything. And so when he passes this test, these three tests there, he is the one who now, thinking back to the people in the wilderness who are going to cross over the Jordan River. To go, he now, as he completes this 40 days in the wilderness, is going to cross the Jordan River, just like they did. But unlike them, we see that he's the one who's passed the test. He is the one who's going to love God with all his heart and soul and strength. And he is the one who's going to trust him in everything. And so as he goes back in, we see him actually driving out evil. And we see him uh, actually establishing the kingdom of God there, which then, we'll see later, spreads through the whole world. But we also see that he knows what it's going to mean for him to do this. And is that he will be um, rejected and killed, and that is what he uh, 
he takes on from the beginning to lay down his life for us. Here's what I want you to do. This is the thing for this week. Some of you are probably ready right now to say, this is what I want in my life. I want Jesus to come in to plant his flag of the kingdom of God in my heart and in my life to drive out the evil that is there. If so, and maybe you've done this before, you can do it again. This is an ongoing thing. It starts with prayer, and it continues with prayer from now until always. For some of you, you may not be ready for that yet, in which case what I would encourage you to do is uh, take the Gospel of Matthew and spend the rest of this week reading it, start to finish, all the way through, and looking how Jesus is a very different king than any other king we've ever known, but that he is the one that we need. He is the only one who ought to be the king over everything, and he is the one who can truly uh, defeat the evil that we face within us and without us. Um, that is the challenge for this week. And we will see, again, like I was saying, how, uh, and if you read all the way to the end, you see what this leads up to, and him going to the cross and to the tomb, and then, as we'll talk about next week, we'll see that that is only the beginning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.